This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our session on security deposits and interest rates. Uh, Judge Kuberman is under the weather and so Taj Rocky Lou is going to uh, do uh, take the bulk of the presentation. I may chime in here or there, uh, but for the most part, we're going to let Taj drive. I think all of you know Taj by this point. She is our administrative pro tem, uh, formerly worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, she's just been an incredible asset to, uh, to our organization. Uh, and so we are going to let her take it away. You should have all of the materials. Um, this should be available as both a webinar and a podcast. Uh, and as always, the materials can be found in Hightail. Uh, so I, I will turn it over to Tosh. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. So um, today we are going to talk about security deposits. And, but before we begin, I will apologize in advance if you see me glancing back and forth. Like many of you, I have double screens and I'm looking between different documents. So um, I apologize in advance if I'm not always looking directly at the camera. But today we're going to talk about security deposits. Although most of you probably already have some experience with this topic, um, I'm going to walk you through the nuts and bolts of it. And hopefully by the time I'm done, you'll have a good understanding of the types of issues that might arise involving security deposits in a small claim setting. If you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat, or I will ask that you hold them until the conclusion of the presentation um, if, if I don't get to them immediately. And then if there's time, we'll, we'll address those then. Slide two, please, Charles. Let's begin by answering the most basic questions. Um, what is a security deposit? What is its intended purpose? Well, a security deposit is a sum of money that is requested by the landlord and given by the tenant to preemptively protect the landlord against any potential damages that the tenant might cause to the landlord's rental property. It is also a means for the landlord to financially protect himself in the event that the tenant prematurely breaks the lease or leaves any amount of rent unpaid. Because in addition to covering any potential damages, that security deposit can also be used by the landlord to satisfy any unpaid rent. So this begs the question, uh, slide three, please. How much can a landlord request from a tenant as a security deposit? There has to be a limit, right? And yes, there is a limit. That limit is clearly set forth in ARS 33-1321A. A landlord cannot request more than one and a half times the amount of the rent for the unit. So for example, if the monthly rent that's going to be charged by the landlord is $1,000 a month, the landlord can request any amount up to $1,500 a month as a, I'm sorry, not a month, up to $1,500 as a security deposit, but not a, not a penny more. Um, next slide. Now, that same subsection, uh, ARS 33-1321A, also makes mention of prepaid rent. What is that? Is that different than a security deposit? And can a landlord request this to in addition to a security deposit? Yes. Yes. Prepaid rent is different from a security deposit, and yes, a landlord can ask a tenant to offer this up as well. Prepaid rent is exactly what it sounds like. It's a request for the payment of rent for the unit 
in advance of the actual date of the use of the unit. Usually it's intended to cover the end of the stay in the unit, the last month's rent. So you'll find some landlords who ask for first and last month's rent plus the security deposit. The idea is that when you terminate the tenancy, you won't have to pay that rent in the last month. And the landlord doesn't have to worry that they might get stuck with it because the tenant's getting ready to move out in any way and just skips. Whereas the security deposit, as I mentioned before, is a guarantee, um, it's a, a security to guarantee the tenant's performance under the lease and to compensate the landlord for any per, uh, potential damages that might occur. So that's different than the prepaid rent. Although ARS 33-1321A limits security, including prepaid rent, to an amount not to exceed more than one and a half months rent, this subsection also specifically states that it does not prohibit a tenant from voluntarily paying more than one and one half month, one and one half months rent in advance. So there is that. Um, I suppose if the tenant wants to agree to pay more, they may do so, slide five. So what about other fees? Um, we've all seen leases with a variety of additional fees attached in addition to the security deposit. Are these fees permitted? And if so, are there conditions for these fees? Yes, additional fees are allowed to be charged to the tenant, but only if those fees are explicitly specified in the lease. The specific language of ARS 33-1321B states that the purpose of all non-refundable fees or deposits shall be stated in writing by the landlord. These fees are generally non-refundable and they are generally not considered to be part of the security deposit. Some of the types of non-refundable fees that you're frequently going to see set out in leases are things like pet fees, parking fees, even cleaning or redecorating fees. And this fee, the cleaning and redecorating fee might seem like something that should be or is covered by the security deposit, but it is specifically allowed and it is specifically considered separate from the security deposits under ARS 33, 1310, section 15. So long as the lease expressly states that the fee is non-refundable and the amount that they're going to charge for it, generally these fees are allowed. If a fee is not specifically stated in the lease, then the landlord can't attempt to charge that fee later. For example, if a tenant has a pet that causes damage, but there's no pet fee indicated in the lease, then the landlord's only recourse is to look at the security uh, to look to the security deposit at the termination of the tenancy and attempt to recover any pet-related damages to the unit from that. Now, what if the landlord does have a pet deposit and a security deposit and the tenant's pet causes damage? Although the statute doesn't explicitly speak to this issue, I'd argue that the landlord utilize the non-refundable pet deposit for any pet related damages before he attempts to withhold money from the tenant's refundable security deposit for those damages. And what if the tenant has a pet, but let's say this pet's an angel and causes absolutely no damage to the unit whatsoever. The landlord has to refund the security deposit in full, assuming that there were no other damages or issues, but the landlord does get to keep that non-refundable pet deposit, even if there was no pet damage. Slide six, please. Let's talk about another kind of fee that sometimes shows up in these types of cases, a lease break fee. A lease is for a set term, usually one year. 
It protects the tenant from being kicked out arbitrarily before the expiration of that date. And it provides the landlord with a guaranteed rental payment for that term, that specified term. But sometimes things happen and a tenant leaves before the lease expires. This is considered a lease break. Some landlords attempt to insert lease break fees into their leases, basically assessing a set amount that the tenant must pay them if they've broken the lease. Although they call them fees, most of these are actually operating as penalties, which are illegal and unenforceable in these types of contract situations. Landlords who attempt to insert lease break fees are generally arguing that the fee is intended to be a liquidated damage. It's a predetermined amount designed to compensate the landlord or the, the, the party to the contract for the harm caused by the lease break. And while liquidated damages are allowable under certain circumstances, it's generally only when the actual damages would be extremely difficult to calculate and expensive to litigate. However, if that's not the case, then the liquidated damage is actually really just a penalty being imposed on the breaching party. And as a matter of public policy, contract remedies are not supposed to be punitive. They are only supposed to be compensatory in nature. Obviously, the court, the judge, will need to make an evaluation of each case on its own merits and make a fact-based determination of whether, under the circumstances of that specific case in front of them, the lease break fee is an appropriate liquidated damage or whether it appears to be operating more as a penalty for the tenant's breach of the contract. If actual damages aren't difficult to determine and the fee is really only operating as a penalty, then it's unenforceable. And in most instances of this nature, lease break situations do not create scenarios where actual damages would be difficult to calculate. So a liquidated damage shouldn't be needed. And for this reason, our Maricopa County Justice Court best policies, uh, best practices policy states that the general practice should be to not award the requested lease break fees or early rental termination fees because it is an unenforceable policy. So keep that in mind whenever you see a claim or a hearing where this is an issue, a lease break fee is, is, is being requested or this becomes an issue. Slide seven, please. So um, here, I just, I just popped in. Uh, someone on the phone is making noise, and uh, you do need to mute yourself if you're on the phone, or else I'm going to mute all the people on the phone from my end, and you won't be able to ask any questions. Again, you can ask questions if you are going to ask a question, unmute yourself or put it in the chat box. Yes, slide seven, please. So um, here's some case law that provides some guidance for you on how to determine when a fee is designed to cover allowable damages versus when a fee is actually simply a penalty in disguise. And remember that the primary purpose of any contractual remedy should be compensatory, not punitive. We aren't looking to punish people for breaching contracts. Our goal is simply to compensate for the actual damage caused by the breach. Next slide. Fees and, uh, and deposits can be either refundable or non-refundable, which are security deposits. Well, technically they could be either. However, generally security deposits are refundable and any fees or deposits that are non-refundable must be explicitly stated in writing. And the purpose of that non-refundable fee or deposit must also be ex explained in writing. If a fee or deposit is included in the lease, but the status is not explicitly specified, then by default, the fee is going to be considered or the deposit is going to be considered refundable. Slide nine. 
Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, the question I had is because you covered lease date, this uh, Judge Frankel, but a lot of times, and I know one law firm does this all the time, they also try to, there's language in there about a collection fee. And the collection fee can be 50% of what's owed and higher. And I would, I've always deemed that the collection fee is the same thing as a punitive clause. They have to establish exactly what it costs to collect the debt. But they so put that language in there as a collection fee. Well, exactly. It would be a determination for the fact finder, for the judge in looking at it to decide based on what you're seeing, the language of the, the contract, as well as, you know, what, what they're asking for, whether or not that's based on actual damages or if it's operating more as a penalty. It would seem that something like collections would be something where actual damages would be easily determined. It wouldn't have to be a liquidated damage or a guess or a percentage of something. There is probably an invoice or a bill from whoever is the collection agency, and that should be easily determined. So it shouldn't require those kinds of fees. Um, but of course, you'd have to do a fact by fact analysis, the same as with a lease break fee. And then I'll be the, 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 the issue, and I, if maybe you could address that the problem often is, is you're seeing this after the tenant's gone and it's in a default judgment. So it's not part of an eviction action, it's a part of a default judgment when they, they've assigned the debt and then the debt collector. So does the court, in your opinion, does the court then have the right to review that and then ask for that information or deem it to be uh, punitive when you're now in a default, collect, you're in a default situation? Well, I would hope first initially that the judge who is hearing the eviction action would catch that at the initial stage and try to ensure that things that are basically penalties rather than legitimate fees are struck from the judgment. Um, if that's not the case, and then that does make its way into the judgment and it is only noticed or caught at the collection stage, I'm going to actually pass that question to Charles. Charles? Okay, re-ask the question. Well, Charles, the, the issue is, is that, that they, they get the judgments, then the attorney at the eviction, it's never raised at the eviction. None of us ever asked the question about the lease. We just look at, did you pay your rent, et cetera. Now they turn them over to collections, and I know one law firm in particular, so I don't want to name law firms because that, that wouldn't be fair. But then they, they get assigned the debt, and there's two or three of them, they're getting assigned the debt of what's owed they're they're not the landlord now it's coming back as a civil case and you're in a default situation and they have a copy of the lease and they're asking for uh the damages they're asking for the judgment what they didn't pay in rent then they're asking for uh lease break fees and collection fees and i will i have ruled no and then i would make them come in show me damages etc but the question i'm raising because now you're in a default situation some judges feel it's a delicate situation because the defendant is not answered, they're not responding, they haven't raised the issue on it. I still believe that it's punitive and you shouldn't be awarding it unless they can establish the judgment, but it's in collection. It's in a lot of the leases, but no judge ever brings it up in eviction because it's not an issue at the eviction hearing. It becomes a collection issue. In a, in a default matter, unless it 
it, it, it is a um, some certain it still has to go to a hearing. Uh, so at the hearing, I think at that, at that point in a collection case, you, you can disallow the lease break fee or a collection fee uh, based on the same theory as in uh, the best practice and is on slide seven. Oh, oh, okay. I mean, I just wanted to bring it up. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Slide nine, please. So um, this is a, a quick little side note. I just wanted to point out that in some states, security deposits have to be held in special accounts. Um, Arizona is not one of those states that has such a requirement. Arizona actually has no specific rules for where or how a landlord must hold a tenant's security deposit funds. In fact, the landlord can even use the tenant's security deposit funds during the tenant's tenancy um, to cover other property-related expenses, so long as the landlord has those funds available to return to the tenant at the time that they move out. So um, just something that you should be aware of. Next slide, please. If you come across a question related to a landlord's obligations with respect to security deposits, your search for answers should always begin with ARS 33-1321. That is the primary statute that spells out the rules relating to security deposits and a landlord's obligations. Um, any question you have should begin with a review of this statute. And you'll hear me citing it a lot during this presentation because a lot of the answers are right there in the statute. Um, in addition to security deposit requirements, uh, the statute spells out certain important obligations that the landlord has. A landlord is supposed to provide a tenant with a signed copy of the lease upon move-in. A landlord is also supposed to give the tenant a move-in inspection form so that any existing damages to the unit can be noted as well as a written notice to the tenant of his or her right to be present during the move out inspection. These are not optional responsibilities or choices on the landlord's part. The language in the statute is that a landlord shall do these things. So it is required. Um, some of the tenant's obligations are also specified in this statute. Uh, the tenant is obligated to return possession of the unit to the landlord upon termination of the tenancy, obviously. Uh, the tenant is also supposed to request to be notified of the move out inspection if he wants to be there, and also to request the return of his security deposit upon the termination of the tenancy. There is an important exception to this though. Um, that is, um, and I wanna draw your attention to it. That is that if the landlord has reasonable fear or apprehension for his or her personal safety from the tenant, because the tenant's being evicted for a material and irreparable breach. We see a lot of those cases where the material or irreparable breach is some kind of altercation with the landlord um, and the tenant or with the tenant and other people in the unit or the apartments that um, demonstrates the, the, the tenant is, has, is, is violent or potentially violent. And if the landlord is afraid of that, then the landlord doesn't have to conduct a joint move out inspection with the tenant. Um, next slide, please. This slide is just a copy of the statute um, that I've put in your materials for your review so that you can read it more closely and so that you have it handy if you ever have questions that come up. Um, next slide. So what exactly is the move-in inspection form? 
it's exactly what it sounds like. It's the form that a tenant should be given upon their move into the unit to allow him or her to go through the unit and note any existing damages so that they aren't attributed to him or her when they move out. Um, anything not noted on the form will likely be presumed to have not been there at the time of move-in, and thus it will likely be presumed to have been caused during the tenant's tenancy. Um, this could result in the landlord withholding money from the tenant's security deposit. So this is an important form, obviously, and an important step that needs to happen. It's just like when you rent a car um, on a trip, a rental, a rental vehicle. You probably go around the vehicle and you inspect it before driving it off the rental lot. You want to make sure that there isn't a crack in the window or a dent in the door or a scratch or a deep, you know, uh, problem in the paint so that they don't think you got into the accident and caused that damage when you return the vehicle. It's the same idea for the move-in inspection um, for security deposit purposes. Clearly, the move-in inspection form plays a large role and will likely be significant evidence if there comes a point when there's a dispute about whether a tenant's security deposit should be deducted for damages to that unit. So you'll want to make sure to consider that during a hearing if there are issues relating to the withholding of security deposit for damages. Slide 13, please. The move out inspection is the other book inside of the move in inspection form. A landlord should be conducting a move out inspection to assess the state of his property at the end of each tenancy. And the purpose of this is to note any damages in excess of the normal wear and tear so that the landlord can de determine if he needs compensation from that security deposit that he got when the tenant moved in. That's exactly one of the purposes for which he got the security deposit. Obviously, the tenant should want to be present during this move-out inspection so that he can see what the landlord's identifying as potential damage that he's going to say that he caused. And the tenant has the right to be present unless the landlord has reasonable fear for his safety, remember, as I explained previously, but the tenant's presence isn't required. And that's a significant distinction to note. The tenant has the right to be informed of the time and the date of the inspection, and the tenant has the right to be present if he desires and shows up at that date and time. I think we can all agree that the tenant should want to be there. However, if the tenant doesn't show up after being informed of the date, the inspection can occur with or without him. The tenant doesn't have to sign off on the landlord's walkthrough. These move out inspections are usually performed during business hours during the work week. That might create problems for some tenants, but that is the reality. Um, now, remember, under the statute, the landlord is required to provide written notification to the tenant that the tenant has the right to be present at the move out inspection at the time when the the tenant is moving in. However, technically speaking, under the language of the statute, the landlord is only required to notify the tenant of when the move out inspection will occur on request by the tenant. So technically the tenant is supposed to ask the landlord for the move out inspection information in order to trigger that requirement of the landlord informing them pursuant to this exact language of the statute. I'm sure most landlords provide that information as a matter of course, regardless, but I did wanna kind of point that out um, if it actually became an issue, how strictly that language would be upheld or enforced, I guess would come down to you, the individual judge. Um, keep in mind that if the tenant requests to be present at the move out inspection and the landlord fails to provide the necessary information to the tenant for him to do so, 
and then ends up deducting damages from the security deposit, the tenant can and probably will use that as a defense in their hearing. They're going to argue that they had no way to dispute or defend themselves against the landlord's allegations or claims of damages that move out because the landlord prevented them from being present at the move out inspection. And then the tenant's likely going to ask for the return of part or all of their security deposit under those circumstances. Um, so that's something to be aware of and consider as a potential issue. Next slide, please. So let's say all of that happens. Tenancy terminates, and now the landlord is sitting with the tenant's security deposit. How quickly does he have to get it back to the tenant? 14 business days. Statute is very clear. Um, we're not counting weekends or legal holidays, but 14 business days the landlord has to return the tenant's security deposit. Counting starts the day after the tenant returns the property keys, not the same day up. And if the deposit hasn't been returned within that 14-day period, then on the 15th day, the tenant can then seek legal redress. Uh, again, technically, the language does require a demand by the tenant for the return of the security deposit. Um, but I think most tenants are probably pretty diligent about asking for their money back when they're getting ready to move out. So I doubt that that would be an issue that comes up frequently. But just be aware um, of the exact statutory language, which states, quote unquote, after termination of the tenancy and delivery of possession and demand by the tenant, the landlord shall provide blah, blah, blah. Um, slide 15, please. So. Within 14 days after the tenancy ends and the property is returned to the landlord, um, the landlord then must return the tenant any money that is owed from the security deposit by mailing it first class to the tenant. Although first class mailing is all that the statute requires, I don't think it's a bad idea to send items like this also via certified mail, and I think a smart landlord would probably want to do that as well as keeping a copy of the letter that they're sending to the tenant uh, with you know, the security deposit and the itemized list. The statutory language says that it should be mailed to the last known address of the tenant unless other arrangements have been made or a forwarding address has been provided. Obviously, the last known address is likely going to be the property or the unit that the tenant has just vacated. So unless they've arranged for mail forwarding with the post office, it won't likely get to the tenant if it's sent there unless they inform the landlord of where they want their check sent. Um, and in most instances, I think most scenarios, the tenant's going to probably be very sure to give the landlord their most current address so that that check gets back to them. Um, if they do, if they provide the landlord with a forwarding address, that's the address that the landlord should be sending this uh, check and information to. Next slide. And here is where the bulk of our hearings arise from. What can be kept from the security deposit by the landlord? Remember, the original purpose of the security deposit is to cover any damages in excess of normal wear and tear and to cover any outstanding unpaid rents owed. Additionally, it can be used to cover other costs that result from a breach of the lease if those were spelled out in the lease agreement. For example, if the tenant vacates the unit and leaves personal items behind, 
the cost to the landlord for removing or disposing of or storing those items could be deducted from the security deposit. Um, the tenant also has obligations um, to maintain the unit in reasonable condition. And that's all spelled out in ARS 33-1341. This includes the kind of basic stewardship and maintenance that we would all assume could or should be taken for granted, but isn't always the case. So for example, it's expected that the tenant will keep the unit clean or you know, safe and dispose of trash and waste regularly, um, that the tenant will use the appliances in a reasonable manner and for the purposes that the appliances were intended for, not some crazy odd purpose, uh, that they will maintain the fixtures reasonably or that they're not going to deliberately or negligently cause damage to the property or to the fixtures in the property. Um, additionally, it's expected that if there is a problem, the tenant, who's the person in the best position to be aware of a problem as soon as it becomes noticeable, the expectation is that the tenant won't promptly notify the landlord of the issue so that the landlord can make repairs. Um, if the tenant fails in those obligations and damage results, then the landlord can deduct the costs of repairing that damage from the tenant's security deposit. Obviously, the move out inspection form and the itemized list that are sent to the tenant should specify what damages were noted, what repairs needed to be made, um, and the costs of those. However, the smart landlord will also probably have taken pictures of any damages that they note in addition to that actual list. Um, and the smart landlord is probably gonna bring those pictures in as exhibits if this issue gets to the point where it requires a hearing. Similarly, the smart tenant will have taken date stamped photos of the unit when they did the move out inspection with the landlord um, and prior to turning over the possession so that the tenant has a record to establish the condition of the unit upon their termination of the tenancy. Photos are gonna go a long way toward helping you guys determine the facts in these types of cases. Um, what, next slide, please. So what constitutes real damage versus normal wear and tear that comes from living in a place for an extended period of time, usually a year, sometimes longer? Basically, what is normal wear and tear? Well, um, there's no hard and fast rule, but generally normal wear and tear is what we expect to be the normal deterioration of the property that one could expect from the intended use of the unit. Absent negligence, um, misuse, abuse, uh, carelessness, things like scuff marks are normal wear and tear, small chips or a few nail holes in the wall or what we would expect when someone's renting our property, maybe some normal fading to um, like drapes and such from exposure to sunlight, uh, some small scrapes or dings, maybe some small stains on the floor, uh, maybe small stains on the carpet, um, dirty grout in the bathrooms or kitchen appliances, some, maybe some loose door handles a slight wearing away of the finish of fixtures. All of those things are things that you'll frequently see and could be normal wear, are generally considered normal wear and tear. Um, things that are not normal wear and tear, gaping holes, you know, holes in the walls, holes in the doors, uh, 
severe damage to tiles, uh, broken tiles that normally tiles don't break under normal usage, gouges or scars in wooden floors, um, holes or large stains or burns in carpet, um, like maybe from cigarettes, uh, broken, missing, seriously damaged fixtures, broken mirrors, broken windows, serious pet damage, um, urine, those kinds of things that are obvious that they have not been able to remove the smell. That's beyond what one would expect from the normal use of the property. And so that is something that would probably be deducted from a tenant's security deposit. Um, these kinds of determinations are obviously going to vary from case to case. They're going to be very fact-based, going to have to look at the evidence from the move-in and the move-out inspections, the photographs that are presented. Um, I think most of us have a good faith, common sense understanding of what level of deterioration one would expect from living in a unit versus what one would probably consider to be an unusual level of damage. And really that's what it frequently is going to come down to, just kind of a common sense, you'll know it when you see it type of determination. Um, just be aware that a landlord cannot withhold from a tenant security deposit for normal types of wear and tear. And they will sometimes come in and ask for things that we would normally expect a landlord to cover in just the, the understanding that this is the, the cost of doing business if you're using rental property and renting it out. Um, uh, make sure you're making a factual determination of whether the, the damage being sought is what you would consider normal wear and tear or whether it's actual damage and make a factual basis on the record for that so that that's clear. Next slide, please. Um, some things like appliances and fixtures, which don't have a hard and fast rule for the expected lifetime per se, but do have a general life expectancy that, you know, is approximately expected to last for this long. Um, this is a chart that gives you kind of a general idea of when things are expected to kind of be worn down to the level that they need to be replaced. On the left-hand side of your slide, I got those items and those time ranges from the HUD appendix um, that the federal government uses in making this assessment um, for, for their properties. Um, the items on the right-hand side of the slide were not based from the HUD appendix. The HUD appendix was silent as to those items, but they were based on general range, lifetime expectancy ranges that I gathered from other sources. Obviously, these are just approximations. These items can wear out before these time frames. They can last longer than these time frames. But this is just to give you kind of a little bit of a rule of thumb and some guidance on what the general expected life expectancy is for these types of um, fixtures and appliances. Next slide. Actually, at, at this point, uh, I want to spend a little bit more time on this because I want to make sure that you don't do your own research uh, and you don't turn yourself into a witness. Uh, we've put this in your training materials so that you can be trained on this, that this is the general life expectancy, um, but you're not to go up on your computer during the trial 
and, and start researching what the life expectancy of a wooden fence is uh, because you're not going to turn yourself into a witness and, and you're not an expert witness. Uh, there was a discipline uh, where a pro tem who may have been a property manager in you know, previous life or, or currently um, basically did turn themselves into an expert witness. Uh, and that makes it awkward for the parties because, uh, you know, the way I phrase it is you, you don't want to be in a position where one of the parties wants to cross-examine you as the judge uh, because you're, you just turned yourself into an expert witness. If you think that there may be a place where this can be researched, then tell the parties to do it. Uh, tell the parties to, you know, to go to the blue book or a blue book um, uh, type resource um, and even take a recess if, if they need to do it at that point. You, you just don't do it yourself. Uh, so are, are there any questions or comments about that? Right. And again, just to what Charles was saying, that's one of those areas that's going to be very fact specific. And the way that will usually present itself in a hearing is that someone's coming, a landlord is coming in <clears throat> and saying, uh, the, the carpet just looked so dingy and worn down and I had to replace the entire carpet in the, uh, in the unit because it, it was clear that it was just dirty. It was filthy. It, it, it seemed stained and it had all of this damage. And if the tenant says, uh, you know, th this unit, uh, I've, I've lived in it for eight years, 10 years, uh, the carpet was wearing down because it, carpet wears down over this time. Um, you're going to have to assess that. And yeah, that does sound about right. A, a carpet that's been walked on by anybody for eight or 10 years is not going to look the same as a carpet that has only been in the unit for one or two years. And so that's the kind of analysis, analysis you'll be making when you're looking at is this damage that is all attributable to this tenant or is this damage that at some level has accumulated over the course of the lifetime of this appliance or item and i can't attribute this all you know eight years of dirty carpet to a tenant who's only lived here for one year so that's where like the the life expectancies can also be a little bit um helpful and for something for you to just kind of have in the back of your mind. Slide 19, or do you want to discuss the order, Charles? What I just put up on the screen is that uh, judicial complaint, just so you know that it really is there. And the commission did find that the judicial officer's line of questioning appeared to advocate for one side and his comments about his knowledge of treating termites gave the impression he was judging the case based on his personal experience. Uh, so uh, again, you don't want to turn yourself into the witness, uh, but you can direct the parties to, to, to do that appropriately. Slide 19, please. All right, so 
if a landlord takes a look at the unit after the termination of the tenancy and determines, hey, I, I see some damage, he has to provide the tenant with a written itemized list of what that damage is and then what deductions he's taking from that tenant security deposit in order to repair that damage um, along with uh, whatever portion remains after those deductions are made. And he sends those that check and that list, the itemized written list to the tenant within the 14 business days, remember. Um, the list has to explain in detail each deduction made. It can't just say, um, out of a 1500 deposit, I, I saw damage that required $500 of repair. Here's your $1,000 back. Here's an invoice I'm keeping $500 for repairs. That will not be sufficient. He has to list um, what, what the items that were damaged were. So for example, his list might note, oh, a broken window in the master bedroom. Um, the cost to repair that with the invoice for that repair from the company that did the repair or the labor costs, if it's an internal uh, handyman, $200 to repair a broken window in the master bedroom. Um, here's your $1,300 returned of your $1,500 security deposit. Here's your itemized list showing you the damage that I noted, the amount that it costs to repair it, and that way the tenant knows why the various amounts that were removed from their security deposit were removed. Um, and then they can obviously contest it if, if, if they don't think that that's legitimate. Next slide. However, the landlord does have a duty to mitigate any damages, and this is important and it can become a frequent issue of contention in hearings also. Um, what exactly does this mean, the duty to mitigate in this specific type of context? It means that even if there is a damage or a loss that's caused by the tenant's actions or the tenant's omission to act, um, say they leave the run water running rather than turning it off and the water spills over, um, once the landlord becomes aware of the situation, even though the tenant's actions or emissions caused the damage, the landlord has a duty to try to minimize the effects of that damage or that loss that are caused by the tenant's actions. For example, um, if the tenant causes damage to the plumbing, as soon as the tenant, um, as soon as the landlord becomes aware, the landlord needs to arrange for that plumbing to get repaired so that the damage from a leak is minimized. If the landlord doesn't and the damage is far worse because they didn't, then they've failed in their duty to mitigate and they may not be able to recover all of those full costs. If the tenant abandons the unit prior to the end of the lease, um, the tenant still is responsible for remainder of the lease's rental term. However, the landlord does have an obligation to try to mitigate that damage by trying to re-rent the unit as soon as possible to cut, to minimize his losses, to cut his losses. If he or she is able to re-rent the property, then any subsequent rental money that he receives has to be used to mitigate the damages owed by the tenant. He doesn't get to just keep that in addition and then sue the tenant for the full amount of the remaining months that the tenant abandoned the unit for. Um, the tenant will only be liable for the time that the property was vacant. Uh, the key fact to remember in this is that a landlord cannot recover damages for harms or losses that he could have but chose not to mitigate. Um, 
A landlord's, a, uh, a landlord's ability to deduct or withhold money from the tenant's security deposit is explicitly subject to this duty to mitigate, and that's set out in ARS 33-1321, Section D. Next slide. So we're going to talk now about wrongful withholding and what that is. Wrongful withholding is when a landlord fails to return a tenant's security deposit. Kind of exactly what it sounds like. He's wrongfully withholding the tenant's security deposit from him. Or it is also if the landlord fails to give the tenant an itemized written list of any deductions that were taken from the tenant's security deposit before returning only a portion of it. And if this happens, if there's a wrongful withholding, what can the tenant do? Well, under ARS 33-1321-E, the tenant can recover the property and any money that's due to him together with damages in an amount equal to twice the amount wrongfully withheld. That's, that's a big deal. Um, in other words, the tenant may be entitled not just to the return of the wrongfully withheld security deposit, but twice the amount of that wrongfully withheld deposit as damages. For example, assume that your security deposit is $1,500 and your landlord fails to return it within the 14 business days permitted and required under the statute. The tenant would then be entitled to sue the landlord for his $1,500 security deposit plus an additional $3,000 as damages for a total judgment of $4,500. I do apologize for my home phone ringing through. Um, one moment. Call my... from name unavailable. Sorry about that. Um, so that that that's a big penalty and, and that can make a big difference for a landlord so it's really important that you pay attention to that and that 14 days that 14 business days um, because it can result in um, a big judgment for the tenant uh, i do want to point out that the language in the statute is discretionary and not mandatory ars 33 1321 e states and i quote if the landlord fails to comply with subsection D of this section, the tenant may recover the property and money due the tenant together with damages in an amount equal to twice the amount wrongfully withheld. May not shall being the operative word. And what that means is that the judge has the discretion, you will have the discretion to determine if trouble damages are warranted under the circumstances of the case. Now, in making this determination, here are some factors that you might want to think about and consider. Why did the landlord fail to return the security deposit within the time frame? Was it deliberate? Was it intentional? Was it willful? Or was it an accident? Was it a clerical oversight that resulted in a delay? Um, the answers to those types of questions are what will likely influence whether you want to award that additional penalty of you know, the, the trouble damages. And keep in mind that this tenant is likely a layperson who is not versed in the law or the rules relating to the Landlord-Tenant Act. And it's highly possible that this tenant is completely unaware of this statute. And it is also highly unlikely that the pro per layperson tenant is going to include this 
in their complaint against the landlord. So would that failure to uh, put that, specify that uh, in the uh, complaint, bar them from recovering these damages? Um, I believe the short answer is no. I, I, I believe that under the statute, you as the judge have the option to order this penalty if you find that the facts warrant it and if you find that the interests of justice warrant it. Um, keeping in mind that these cases are happening in small claims and that these tenants will not have lawyers and they are not going to be familiar with what you know they're supposed to put in complaints. But if in the course of the hearing you hear evidence that indicates that the failure to return the security deposit within the set amount of time or the failure to provide the itemized deduction list um, that the landlord is supposed to, uh, to, to provide. Um, if you hear evidence or facts that seem to indicate that such a penalty is warranted, you do have the discretion to, um, to, to do that. Uh, I'll also note that this statute has also been upheld by Arizona Supreme Court in Schaefer versus Murphy, where the tenant was allowed to recover twice the amount of her security deposit as damages, for the landlord's failure to supply her with an itemized statement of the damages that were being deducted, even though the tenant did owe the landlord more than that amount of her security deposit for unpaid rent. So it has been upheld by the Arizona Supreme Court and um, the award of those trouble damages. Next slide. Uh, and I do want to talk about this because uh, I don't necessarily agree that you can treble if it's not included in the complaint. But first, I, I want to um, remind the hearing officers, do not go over your uh, jurisdictional limit of 3,500 uh, because that is a jurisdictional limit. So uh, if you do and, decide to trip, make sure you don't go over the limit. And, and why do I say in Schaefer, where it went over the limit, it, went, it got transferred to civil court out of the, just, uh, out of the justice court. Sorry. Go ahead, Charles. If you're going to do that, then you're going to transfer it to civil. Uh, the reason I say you may not want to include it if the, if it's not in the complaint is if you're in a default situation, uh, the defendant, who may also not be in, uh, represented by an attorney, they decide, you know, they're only asking $600. It's not worth my time to go to court to fight it. And then all of a sudden, if they get a judgment in the mail that is for $1,800, uh, and they did not have a clue that that might be happening because it's not included in the complaint. I think that is something that you, you do want to take into account in, in the event that the defendant is defaulting. Does anyone have any comments, questions, any other takes on that? Judge Driggs, do you want to chime in on that? No, sorry, I'm, I'm good. Sorry, right. um, I, I would just say that I, I think that that you probably, and I think that Taj was speaking to it, should apply the same standard. If it was willful or deliberate, I mean, you, I think you have to determine before you, before you do that, consistent with like on holdovers. I think it's the same kind of logic. How was the how was the defendant, or in this case, it'd be the plaintiff in either case? How were they damaged? by that action. So I didn't return it all. Was it willful? And how was I actually damaged? How was the plaintiff damaged by not getting all the security deposit back? Just like in a willful holdover situation, how is the the, the uh, property 
damaged by the person staying there. Thank you. Okay, anyone else? Next slide, thank you. Um, so what happens if a tenant leaves the unit, um, either through termination of the tenancy or a earlier abandonment, um, but he leaves behind some of his personal property? And we're not talking about just like a few little odds and ends here or there, or some junk or maybe some, some food left in the refrigerator. What if they leave behind a significant amount of personal property, their, their items? Well, the landlord's required to hold on to that abandoned property for 14 calendar days after the landlord retakes possession of the unit. And he does have to take reasonable care of it during that time. Um, that doesn't include, include perishable items. If there are plants, he doesn't have to water the plants. If there's an animal, he doesn't have to, you know, take care of the animal. Animal. I, I would hope that he he would try to ensure that the animal is safe. But he does ha he doesn't have any obligations to the animal or the plants or perishable items. He should call animal control to come pick up the animal um, so that it can be taken away to a safe place. Um, if there's anything that poses a health or a safety risk. Um, he doesn't have to maintain those items. They can also be disposed of. But everything else, personal property, for, for 14 business days, he does have to store and reasonably uh, keep safe those items. However, after that time has passed, uh, the landlord may then donate to you know, spec specified charities. Like you can't donate it to your cousin, but you can donate it to a legitimate charity. You can get rid of it, dispose of it, have it taken to the dump. Um, basically, you can get rid of the property. Um, however, if you do sell the property, the proceeds from the sell have to be used once again to mitigate any damages or outstanding costs that may be attributed to the tenant. So if the tenant still owes something on rent or the tenant owes for some damage to the unit and they leave personal property behind and you're able to sell that for, I don't know, $500, you don't get to just pocket that $500 for the inconvenience. You have to use that to mitigate the costs of the storage of the property for the 14 days, or if there was no cost associated with that, then the unpaid rent. Um, any excess profit, say they had their stuff was worth so much that it covered all the damage and it covered all of it, the um, outstanding rent and there was still money left over uh, you have to send the excess process uh, profit to the last known address for uh, that that you have for the tenant again hopefully you have a forwarding address if you don't say the tenant just abandoned it then you have to send it to the last known address through us mail and um hopefully it gets to them you don't get to just keep it, or the landlord doesn't just get to keep it. If the tenant reaches out to the landlord in writing before the property is actually sold or disposed of, then the tenant has five days to recover that property, so long as he repays the, uh, the landlord for the full cost of the storage and the removal of the property. So do be aware of that. Next slide. Sometimes it happens that a landlord sells their property to another owner while a tenant is still occupying that property um, and, and has a lease. Uh, when that happens, it's the buyer's responsibility to ensure that he or she receives all of the tenant, uh, the tenant security deposits from the current owner that they are buying the property or the units from. 
and then the new owner becomes bound by the responsibilities of the statutes, including the responsibility to return the security deposit to the tenants upon the termination of the tenancy. Now, there was recently a scenario where um, the tenants were in a unit for almost eight years and the landlord had sold the property repeatedly and so by time it got to the landlord that owned the property at the time that the tenant was moving out we were several landlords um, past that um, that landlord said they never got a security deposit that tenant said they paid a security deposit which presumably they did because most people do, um, and most landlords require it before move-in, eight years earlier when they had um, first moved in. Um, that requires a fact-based analysis, and usually you're, wanna, you're going to want to see things like receipts. Um, unfortunately, sometimes people don't always keep them uh, or they get lost, but in, in those really weird, unique, complicated circumstances, you're going to just have to do a factual analysis and make your best determination. Um, but ultimately, the landlord is supposed to be responsible for making sure they got the tenant uh, the tenant security deposits from whoever they bought it from, and they are held to the um, to the requirements and the responsibilities of the statute, and they are supposed to return the security deposit to the tenant when they terminate their lease. Next slide. And, and I'm going to chime in here and, and build off a couple of points there because we do have a number of pro tens who are here who are going to do eviction matters. And just a reminder, the security deposit is never an issue in the eviction matter. If the landlord did not get the security deposit before the tenant moved in, that's the landlord's problem. They're, they're not entitled to it as an element of damages. And likewise, when you're determining the amount of the judgment, the tenant can't say, well, just apply the security deposit to that because the, we, the tenant hasn't moved out yet, so we don't know how much damage there may be. Uh, so the security deposit is never going to be an issue in the eviction matter. Um, so that pretty much covers everything that I wanted to go over with relation to the laws of security deposits. But I did just want to briefly touch on the fact that these cases, you're going to see them if you're seeing them. It is because they are probably in small claims hearings. And so just a brief overview of the general limitations relating to small claims hearings. Um, hearings. These hearings in small claims involve claims for money damages of $3,500 or less. That does not include interests or costs. That's just the claim, the, the, the damages. They can be conducted by JPs, pro tem JPs, or appointed small claims hearing officers. There are no juries for these hearings and no attorneys can represent either side. The decision is final. Um, there is no right to appeal in a small claims hearing. And this is really important because it impresses upon us or it should impress upon us the deep responsibility that we have to try to get it right. Um, mistakes in small claims really offer very little recourse for the aggrieved party. Uh, I, in my role as administrative pro tem, I see this frequently in small claims cases where there's been an illegal error, but there's not really a, a recourse. Um, and so mistakes in small claims are a big deal because the, the, the party, the litigant who 
that mistake was against doesn't have the appellate rights that would normally apply in, in regular civil matters. So I would just encourage you all when in doubt, take a brief recess to find the answer if you're not sure, or take a matter under advisement if you feel that you need a little bit more time to be sure. Just remember that the litigants are relying on you to get it right because they don't have the right to appeal if you get it wrong. Um, next slide. We do have a question. It sounds like an eviction question. The tenant oh. testified that she had moved out. The lawyer said there was no proof that the keys had been returned and wants the judgment set it over for trial. Uh, the answer to this one is the lawyer cannot testify. Uh, so um, there is a, a factual issue there. And so that would have to be set for trial unless the lawyer does have a client present who can well, I mean, in that event, it's, it's still going to be a, uh, a trial, whether it's um, taking place that time or another time. And so now we're going to um, move on and briefly talk. Before we move into interest rates, are there any questions about security deposits? Okay, let's move into okay, interest rates. So now we're going to move on and briefly talk about interest rates on judgments. Um, there are just a, key, a few key facts that you need to know. Uh, first, any interest rate that the parties mutually agree to contract to in writing is allowed by law in Arizona. Um, second, uh, what, I've just put, what I've just put up is the publication for uh, the interest rate that is based upon the bank prime rate, as you can see, it's still 3.5%, so it has not been published, so it has not increased. I will let you know when it gets published. It probably will be published Friday afternoon, and at that point, then this will go up to 4.0, which would make the legal interest rate 5.0. It hasn't changed yet, uh, and we will let you know when it does change. Thank you. So any interest rate that the parties agree to contract to in writing, if they come to a mutual agreement, Arizona allows that. Um, second, if the contract doesn't specify an interest rate in its, in its provisions, then by default, the rate is set for 10% for contracts. Um, and finally, the uh, post-judgment interest rates are going to be either the contracted rate that, that is in writing that the parties mutually agreed upon, or if there is no specified contract rate, um, the lesser of the default of 10% or the prime rate plus 1% on the date that the judgment is entered. And that's the prime rate that Charles was just showing you, the publication that the sheet for, that is currently 3.5% plus the 1%, making it the 4.5%. It is about to change when he sends that new interest rate out, he will send uh, an email to me and I will also forward that to all of the pro tems, hearing officers and mediators so that you're aware. But for now, it is still four and a half percent, at least for probably another day. Um, next slide. We have a best practice on this. Um, our best practices can always be found in the share drive and they are guidance to let you know 
this is what we prefer that the uh, judicial officers in our organization are doing so that everyone is on the same page and that we are uniformly, uh, uniformly following a consistent rule of law. Um, under our best uh, practice uh, relating to interest rates, and a copy was provided, I believe, when we sent the materials to you for today's presentation uh, a few days ago. So you should have it in your materials. Under these best practices, prejudgment interest is authorized if the amount of the debt is for an undisputed specified amount. Um, although the presumption is that the contracted interest rate is valid, that can be rebutted, that presumption, if the rate is considered by the judge to be unconscionable. Um, again, that's kind of, you'll know it when you see it. There's no set amount that is pre-decided to be unconscionable, but you'll know it when you see it, and it will probably vary from individual judge to individual judge, but you do, as a judge, have the discretion to determine that uh, you, you feel that that rate is unconscionable, and if so, then the presumption that the contracted interest rate is valid can be rebutted. Uh, the same applies to post-judgment interest. The contracted rate is presumed to be valid, and it is presumed to be what will be enforced, but that presumption is also rebuttable, and the judge can find that the rate is unconscionable. Um, if so, the judge should award post-judgment interest on the principal at the default rate of 10%. Interest rates on any costs awarded as part of a judgment should be at the rate of the prime rate plus one, which right now is 4.5%, unless the contract explicitly states otherwise. And that is it, unless Charles has anything to add. That's security deposits and interest rates in a nutshell. All right, do we have any questions or comments or concerns about interest rates? No questions about interest rates. That's that's pretty shocking. All right, you do want to uh, check with the judge that you are proteming or hearing officering for with respect to what their um, feelings on interest rates are. We're not telling you how to rule. What I'm telling you is if you want to be invited back to work for that judge again, if you're signing judgments at a 204% interest rate, uh, you're, you're, you might not be invited back to work for that judge again. Uh, I'm, I'm a little leery of using the word unconscionable because the legislature has decided that a 204% interest rate uh, for uh, title loans is legal. Uh, and so if it's legal, is it necessarily unconscionable? And on appeal, our uh, appellate judges are, are perhaps not going to be uh, as willing to find something unconscionable as you are. Uh, so you, you do want to be careful if these are appealed. Uh, if you just strike through and reduce an interest rate it, and it gets appealed, it may not be upheld on appeal. Uh, so you, again, you may want to seek guidance on that. And, and if any of uh, it, Judge Driggs, if you want to chime in here, Judge Reagan, Judge Frankel. Well, a, a couple a couple things. One is my understanding is 
And I know there was a judge prior that just used to say, well, you know, all you need to do is say it's unconscionable and you can do it. But if you read that statute, you actually have to give the party notice that you're wanting to rule it as unconscionable and give them the opportunity to be heard on it. You can't just say unconscionable and do what you want. There's a B to that unconscionable statute. Um, and the other thing is, Charles, isn't it that, that one of, there was an appellate decision you sent out where, and you even commented, I thought, that they, they were sort of saying interest above 23.9%, you may have an issue, but that, that up to 23.9%, you probably just have to accept that was in the contract. Um, do you remember that? Am I am I stating? Uh, I'm okay with interest rates up to thirty six percent. I, I okay. don't find that unconscionable at all. When you start getting over thirty six percent, that uh, that it starts to to get concerning. Uh, let, let's let Judge Triggs chime in here. So I had an appeal. So first I had an, a pro tem who just, you know, crossed out. They were asking for about 5,000 in prejudgment or interest um, for maybe a, you know, a thousand dollar loan or something. Because a lot of times they wait three or four years before um, bringing this to the court. And then the interest has really hiked up. Um, and this was one of those interest rates that were like, it's like 203% with a maximum that the legislator allows or legislature and the, the statutes allow. And since that pro tem, they marked it to zero and they only gave $100 in prejudgment interest. It was, it was an incorrect decision. So the, the plaintiff appealed it and the um, appellate judge, you know, overturned it and sent it back to me. So then I did what I thought was best, which was I allowed them to have you know, one year of their um, their contracted. Well, what they they signed on the um, contract, they signed that they would pay a certain amount of interest for that loan, and so I was sure to grant that much. And then after that, I marked it down to ten percent. You know, finding that the this was supposed to be a short term loan, and that to pay that amount of two hundred percent. Was un I didn't I didn't write that it was unconscionable. I, I followed the best practice that we would you know award them the prejudgment interest that was consistent to the contracted interest rate, but then moved it down going forward to 10%, and that was overturned as well with the appellate judge saying, um, unless you can find a legal reason why this co you know contract is not valid the legislature has already said that this is a you know reasonable amount to be able to charge this much interest um and there's no really legal argument why that contract's not valid so it was overturned and so that that plaintiff got a ton of interest because this this judgment was old so i mean i i had to sign i didn't want to try to do anything further because I was afraid they would appeal again. So I was left with their three cases all at once that were appealed and they were already costing the, you know, the defendant money because each time it had to have attorneys and the appeal costs. And so I just left it as is and hopefully those defendants can either settle something or they'll probably file bankruptcy, but it's difficult. I mean, that appellate judge decided that it, you know, that's the contract and the contract is binding and there's no getting out of it. So 
I don't know that unconscionable would even help in that situation. Uh, Charles uh, Mike Reagan. Yes. Yeah. Um, what I've done with especially the consumer finance payday title loans uh, was grant the plaintiff the interest for the term of the original contract, but not uh, give them that exorbitant interest rate after the default. And then I would just drop it down to, I believe, 36%. Uh, and then up to the time they filed the judgment, then I gave them 10%. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you said that, Judge Reagan, because that had always been my practice. Uh, the case that Judge Driggs is just talking about, the plaintiff, um, the savvy plaintiffs now anticipate that and they put in their affidavit that the part, no, no, the, the parties didn't just agree for 204% for a year. They agreed to 204% for eternity. Um, and so that's now in the affidavit. So, you know, yeah, that, that was my preferred way of tackling it. Um, and, and some of uh, the savvy plaintiffs, but that plaintiff also recognized that, um, that it, it was basically outrageous. And so they agreed to reduce the interest rate Judge Triggs to 29% or what did they agree to reduce it to? They did 3% per month. So it ended up 36%. being 36%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that, you know, these are the lower court appeals judges that we have before us now. We do have a class on lower court appeals on Monday. Uh, and so we, we are gonna talk to those judges uh, and, and get a feel for how they feel about interest rates uh, at that point too. So if you can't catch that live, catch catch it on YouTube because uh, it'll be up there. I, we have a couple comments about um, would unconscionability be an affirmative defense and need to be pleaded? If you're going to take that position and start signing default judgments at 204% interest, again, you may not be invited back to work for that court because when this comes up for renewal in 10 years, a, a $1,200 judgment at 204% interest in 10 years is now uh, $68,000, okay? That that does start to make people some somewhat queasy. Uh, so um, you, you do wanna get a feel for the judge. And if the judge comes back with an answer that you don't like, well then leave that file for them. Don't, again, we're not telling you how to rule uh, I'm not telling you to do anything you don't think is proper, um, but if you want to be invited back in that court, you do have to get a feel for what that judge um, would like to see. And you, you shouldn't give a result that is wildly different than what the, the full-time judge would have done. And then uh, uh, we have a, a comment, can we consider whether a plaintiff tried to timely enforce a contract as opposed to letting it ride up to ride it right up to the statute of limitations just to collect more pre-judgment interest. That is one of the considerations and, and Judge Driggs indicated that's one of the things that she looked at. All right, any other questions, comments, or concerns? We, we need to go a little while longer if we want to get the 90 minutes of, of CoJet. 
And I've received a question from some people about the materials. I'm going to send the materials out as long as well as the uh, blank COA to everyone as soon as the um, the COJEC concludes, uh, the, the training concludes. So you will, if you have not received them, you will be getting them. Yeah, the materials were emailed out with the invitation and they're also in judicial, in Hightail. They, they were put up there when the invitations were mailed out. All right, Mr. Kielski. How about compound interest versus simple interest um, if it's not specified in the contract? And what if it what if compound interest is specified? Okay, you, you, you don't have a great connection there. I didn't hear the second part. Uh, yeah, the question is about compound interest. And what if it's not specified in the contract? And what, uh, what about if compound interest is required by the contract? If compound interest is required by the contract, then presumably you're going to apply the compound interest. Uh, I mean, interest is generally accrued annually. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't accrue interest on the prejudgment interest. Uh, but uh, for interest that does accrue annually, that would be compounded, if that makes sense. All right, Judge Frankel? Yes, I, um, I know that they, they changed the law, um, and I know Todd's probably referenced it, about how many days that a tenant has to dispute the amount in the um, security deposit. But but I remember because I tried talking to some legislators that that it talks about notice, but it really doesn't define how notice is to be provided. Now there is you know general notice language in the Residential Landlord Tenant Act, but you know is the email acceptable or the tenant comes in and says, well I I talked to the landlord um, and we had a phone conversation about this or I texted him and the landlord said I never got the email or I didn't get the text or you know there's a dispute because if I remember correctly, notice is not clearly defined in um, that part of the law that they changed about with uh, how long the tenant has to dispute uh, a security deposit. So under ARS 3313.21D, I believe it is within 60 days, uh, the statute specifically states if the tenant does not dispute the deductions or the amount due and payable to the tenant within 60 days after the itemized list and the amount due or mailed as prescribed by the section, then the amount due to the tenant as set forth in the itemized list with any amount due is deemed valid and final and any further claims of the tenant are waived. That's 33-1321-D. Right, but I think Judge Frankel's question is, um, it doesn't say how to dispute. Ah. I, so what, the statute, what, a the, call, what a phone call, what a text message be sufficient? I, I think since the statute doesn't specify, whereas it's in the same provision where the statute does specify how the landlord is to um, notify the tenant of their obligations. Since that same provision does not specify 
a specific course of action for the way in which the tenant is disputing, I would argue that they could do it through email or some other written form. I don't see that it has to be by U.S. mail, but I may be wrong. Charles, do you know if there is a, spe a specific form or fashion that is required for the tenant to dispute? I think that is going to be a factual issue. Obviously, if you have something in writing, it's going to be easier to prove that you that you did dispute. If you're just going with, um, I have a text message and I didn't keep a copy of it, or I made a phone call, um, then that may or may not be persuasive evidence, and, and the person may have an issue proving that they did dispute in a timely basis. Any other questions, comments, concerns? Um, this we is Sonia. On that last note, I wanted to just um, note that I presided over a recent tenant landlord case where the tenant was the plaintiff. And the way she disputed it within that 60 days is she literally filed a lawsuit based on that very specific issue. That's all I wanted well, that, to share. That, Thanks. That would be notice. <laughs> that, that's a good way to. Well, uh, as long as she then serves it within the 60, I mean, if you file the lawsuit and don't get it served within the 60 days, then it arguably was not timely. Um, all right, if there are any, not any other questions or comments or concerns, we are going to be doing roundtables for the hearing officers and roundtables for the pro tens. Uh, send to Taj the, what, what you want us to cover in, um, in those sessions. If there are, we do have a bunch of educational classes coming up. Uh, and if there's anything else that, that you think that you, you want to see as a session, uh, send that to Taj as well. Uh, send your uh, certificate into Taj. Uh, does anyone have anything else? Taj, do you have any closing statements? Just when you send your COA, send them to Keenan and me. Um, Keenan is actually the person who puts it into the system. I just like to keep my own internal uh, records that I track. So do send them to me, but also please send them to Keenan because he's the one who puts it in. If you don't, if you forget, a lot of times people do, that's fine. I'll forward it to Keenan for you. It's not, it's not a big deal. Um, additionally, you should have all received recently um, your CoJet updates, the three quarter point CoJet update from me that I've been sending out. So that should give you a good idea of what you still need to meet your CoJet requirements and what we have coming up, the upcoming classes that will satisfy those. Because I know you guys are all probably looking to uh, get your CoJets done before the new application season. And we have a lot of trainings in the next couple of months that Charles has arranged for you. Everything should be able to be satisfied and as you see with the virtual, they're being recorded. So you, if you're not able to attend, you can always log on and watch the recording and submit your certificate of attendance that way. Yeah, we were hoping to go hybrid and so have people appear in person and via the web. And I suspect most of you would probably prefer to appear virtually, uh, but we don't have that capability yet. We may have that capability starting in June the civil traffic hearing officer class is going to be in person at the downtown justice center because we're going to break off and go into the training rooms. Um, so just pay close attention to the notices as to whether it's going to be virtual, a hybrid or in person only.
All right. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you. Nice job. Appreciate it. Thank you.